programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the magazine Edible Wasatch, encouraging readers to explore regional food systems by voting with their forks. Information and copy location information is at ediblewasatch.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. David Abrams is my guest today, and uh, he has uh, based a novel, Fobbit, on his experiences serving in Iraq, the diary he kept there. Fobbit takes us into the chaotic world of Baghdad's forward operating base, Triumph. The forward operating base, or FOB, is like the back office of the battlefield. That's where grunts eat and sleep between missions, where a lot of Army employees have what looks like, especially like an office job. FOB contains all the comforts of home, including Starbucks and Burger King, but there's also the unfortunate possibility that a mortar might hit you while you're drinking your Frappuccino. The novel follows dyed-in-the-wool Fobbit Staff Sergeant Chance Gooding, who works for the Army Public Affairs Office and spends his days tapping out press releases to try to turn the latest roadside bombing or Army blunder into something the American public can read while reading their uh, eating their breakfast cereal. Like Catch-22 and MASH, Fobbit fuses pathos with dark humor to tell the ugly and banal truth of life in the modern-day war zone. The Provo Canyon Review and Utah Humanities Council are presenting two appearances by David Abrams in Utah. Uh, first of those is Saturday, uh, September 28th, 7 p.m. in the Provo City Public Library. And then another appearance Sunday, September 29th, uh, 2.30 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library. David Abrams, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. So tell me first about your uh, your capsule form your your career in the army you were a, a pr guy right for tw- some 20 years i was i was in the active duty army for 20 years um uh, mainly in pub- or, uh, actually all pro- public affairs um started off as a journalist and uh, worked my way up through the ranks and eventually retired as a master sergeant um and i did a did one tour over in iraq in 2005 and you kept a journal there I did when I was in when I was in Iraq. I you know I I had um, I, I guess all throughout my life I had kind of scribbled in a journal and in a diary, you know when you have a diary as a teenager. But I got really serious about it when I went over to Baghdad because um, I thought you know this is you know this is this is going to be the time. This is going to be the time of my life when I really need to pay attention to everything and just kind of capture all the details of everything that's going on around me. And so that's what I did. I, I wrote in my journal for every day. I was interested in a piece you wrote, uh, I think this was for the New York Times, on the anniversary of the uh, Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said in 2003, I guess when it started, you were in Alaska, right? I was, yeah. I, I, I actually served, I served about nine years uh, up there in the, in the great state of Alaska. And so you write that as you're out um, at, you know, jogging, uh, I guess this is a... Um, you know, exercise that the army does in in uh, I guess freezing temperatures. Um, that you you thought about those soldiers who were going to be heading out into war, and I guess for the next two years before you got deployed. But it was at a remove, right? It was a distance. They were sort of like figures on a video screen. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, I think that's that's kind of how how a lot of America um, kind of sees the military and soldiers. They're kind of at a distant remove. And here I was. I was even in the army. And yet, I was thinking those kind of things about about my brothers and sisters and uh, you know in arms who are over there, um, heading over there um, into into combat. So it was it was kind of a kind of a weird feeling to have, really. 
Yeah, that's interesting to me because I, th- I think you're right. I think for most of us, uh, it's figures on a video screen. It's it's reports in the newspaper. Maybe you watch something on CNN. Uh, but it's there's definitely a distance. And then you say in 2011 on this the this anniversary, uh, you were once again sort of at a remove. You you'd been out of the army, I guess, for a little while. And yeah, um, I I think it's kind of a phenomenon that you know while I was over there. Um, Iraq and to a degree, um, to, a, to a certain extent, Afghanistan, they were the most important things in my life, you know, with capital letters. And then, uh, you know, you know, every, every, everything that happens is important. You know, everything that goes on over there, I really pay attention to. And then I come back home and, you know, I'm reading the rest of the headlines and I'm going on about my daily my daily life and, you know, watching Survivor on TV and things like that. And it just sort of seems to fade into the background gradually. It's really sad that that happens. But, you know, eventually, you know, all, all of those headlines sort of drift back to page seven and eight in the newspaper and beyond. And, and they get a little bit smaller type. And, um, you know, I think, I think people, you know, eventually it just kind of fades into the background, all, all, part, all part of the background noise. Um, so yeah, there was a little bit of a remove even after, even after I got back, and then of course, especially once I got out of the military and, and went on to other things. And you write in this piece that uh, you, know, you feel a little bit of guilt for this. I think a lot of us do. It's it's oh, uh, the soldiers are over there fighting our war. We're we're you know safely removed and uh, and only think about it every once in a while. Yeah, and, and you know that's kind of some of the. I, I guess that's some of the some of the things I try to capture in in the novel in Fobbit itself is how is how we've got we've got soldiers who are who are even over there in the combat zone, and yet they still kind of feel a, a certain distance from actually what's going on in the you know in the in the real fighting and the real patrolling out on the streets. Uh, you've got the two separate groups of soldiers. You have the Fobbits who are back there in the, in the relative safety of the forward operating base. And then you've got um, you've got the soldiers who are out there under under Captain Abraham Lincoln Shrinkle's command, um, who are out there patrolling the streets, winning the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people, um, and they're the ones who are facing the real danger. But then you've got the Fobbits who are who are sitting back there at the fob, um, kind of feeling guilty for not being out there and being part of the the more boots on the ground kind of action. There's an obvious connection, of course, to uh, to Tolkien, right? Um, and uh, in fact, you open the book with a quote from uh, Tolkien: uh, uh, "You know, hole in the ground that lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty hole, but it's uh, kind of a comfortable hole." And these, I guess, that's, that's sort of what a what a fobbit is. A fobbit is a what a sort of back office administrative type soldier who never or rarely leaves the uh, forward operating base. Exactly, and and you've got you've got fobbits of all stripes. You've got. People like me, you know, who worked in public affairs, you've got computer repair people, uh, you've got the chaplain's assistants, although I should say chaplain's assistants do go out um, on the streets quite often. Uh, but, you, it's, you know, it's most, mostly the uh, support folks who are back there um, and um, who just, uh, for, you, know, uh, you know, really, really, for whatever reason, just don't get out there. They don't go beyond concertina wire out into the real action. And there's a lot of guilt that goes along with that. I'm, you know, I don't think there's a, I don't think that there's a, a, a person who's over there, fobbit or not, who wouldn't, you know, who wouldn't, uh, who wouldn't admit to that kind of guilt for not actually doing more, uh, you know, while they were over there in Iraq. What's the attitude of it? You've called them the door kickers. What's the attitude of the soldiers who go beyond the concertina wire to the fobbits? 
Um, yeah, I, I think that there's a, I, I think that there's definitely a, a bias against the Fobbits, and and often for good reason. Um, I won't I won't kid you. There's there's a lot of a lot of people who who would be called Fobbits who do take advantage of that and, and find ways to stay back there, as, as we saw in the, as we see in the novel. Um, you know, they find ways to to stay in their air conditioning, stay in front of their computer screens, and stay out of harm's way. So, so the people that are out there, the, the grunts or the door kickers or the, the, you know, the people who are the combat armed soldiers, um, yeah, there's certainly a bias against, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's certainly a bias against fobbits. Now, there are some fobbits who don't want to be fobbits, right? They, they take great care to to make sure everybody knows that we're, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm going out on patrol <laughs> a, a, as often as I can. Right, and you know those, those are the those are the people who are the reluctant fobbits, um, and and generally they're they're the officers who have been um, assigned uh, kind of a desk job uh, while they're up, while you know while they're over there. Um, they're the ones who really do want to be out there, um, uh, you know. But, but yet they are they're kind of chained to their desk, and so they too feel a lot of guilt, but they also feel some frustration and really angst about about being stuck back here with these pasty-faced, you know, people who don't go out into the light and who really have the neat starched uniforms and and they don't really go out and, and, um, you know, prove themselves as as men and women. Um, I'm hoping you have your book with you. I do, yeah. I didn't ask you about that before. Always, always do. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, I wonder if you'd read uh, page two. This is uh, you open the book with you know explaining sort of what fobbits are. We talked about that, and then then you get, get into describing uh, your main character, Staff Sergeant Chance Gooding Jr. Sure. Um, okay, sure. Um, do you want me to read the whole page? Uh, whole page, yes. Okay, wonderful. So this is page two of Fobbit. Yes. Of all the fobbits in the U.S. Military Task Force headquarters at the western edge of Baghdad. Staff Sergeant Chance Gooding Jr. was the fobbitiest. With his, with his heat-pressed uniform, his, his lavender vanilla body wash, and the dust collected around the barrel of his M16 rifle, he was the poster child for the stay-back, stay-safe soldier. The smell of something sweet radiated off his skin, as if he bathed in gingerbread. Gooding worked in the public affairs office of the 7th Armored Division, headquartered in one of Saddam Hussein's marbled palaces. His PAO days were filled with sifting through reports of significant activities and then writing press releases about what he had found. His job was to turn the bomb attacks, the sniper kills, the sucking chest wounds, and the dismemberments into something palatable, ideally something patriotic that the American public could stomach as they browsed the morning newspaper with their toast and eggs. No one wanted to read. A soldier was vaporized when his patrol hit an improvised explosive device, his flesh thrown into a nearby tree where it draped like Spanish moss. But the generals and colonels of the 7th Armored Division all agreed that the folks back home would appreciate hearing. A soldier paid the ultimate sacrifice while carrying out his duties in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Gooding's weapons were words. His sentences were missiles. As a fobbit, Chance Gooding Jr. saw the war through a telescope. The bloody snarl of combat remained at a safe, sanitized distance from his air-conditioned cubicle. And yet, here he was, on a fob at the edge of Baghdad, geographically central to gunfire. To paraphrase the New Testament, he was in the war, but he was not of the war. 
That's an interesting phrase. You can even extend that to, you know, as we were talking about earlier, America as a whole. We're, you know, when we're at war, it seems like most of us are, are at war, but we're not really at, at war. We're, we're at a remove. True. That's very true. That's very true. Um, and so um, Chance Gooding, uh, Staff Sergeant Chance Gooding, has a very interesting job. Uh, it's PR. And so he's tasked with taking this horror and turning it somehow to make it palatable, to make it uh, a, a positive, I guess, to, to put the Army in a good light. Yeah, he's, he's sort of responsible. Well, he's one of the people that's responsible for trying to spin the war, uh, to make it something a little bit um, more... Um, pleasant for people to read about, um, which is not to say that you know all of the people, all of the public affairs people like myself in the past were out there just spinning the war um, and, and lying to the American people. We don't we don't lie. We we, we you know we, we tell the truth, but we don't always give every single detail. Of course, you know for then there's various reasons we don't. Um, whether it's for security reasons, you know we don't want our soldiers. Uh, to come into harm's way, or just um, we're just not able to to tell the American public everything um, uh, about what's going on for for various reasons. What was your What was your job description as a, as a PR man in the Army? What did What did you see your job as? Um, well, I my my job was like Chance Gooding Jr. to 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 write press releases. Um, I talked to. You know, CNN and ABC, I was that typical American, or typical Army spokesperson uh, that you heard about. Um, spent nearly all of my 14 hours every day staring at a computer screen um, and sifting through casualty reports, uh, like, like, like we heard, you know, gave really bad, gruesome details about bombings and sniper attacks. So that's kind of what I did. I was a desk-bound soldier throughout the war. There's this uh, amazing disconnect, which I assume is based on, on truth. Um, the, uh, the, the sergeant isn't able to confirm for the media any death until an actual until a doctor, an Army doctor, uh, confirms that. And I guess there's some wisdom in that. In the meantime, CNN's got it, uh, you know, on the, on the news. Oh, exactly. And, and this is kind of one of the things that we were kind of rubbing up against, kind of fighting um, all of the time, is the, is the need to to get the information out quickly and at, as well as accurately, because um, that's our job, to, you know, to get it out as accurately as possible. Um, but yet there is also all of the red tape and all of the steps that we have to follow. And one of those steps is that we have to wait for a doctor's confirmation. Um, you would have somebody who, you know, unfortunately would be killed out there on the streets and they would, they would bring his body back or, or, or whatever, and then uh, we would have to wait until it was actually confirmed that this person was indeed dead, even though, not to get too graphic about it, but, you know, he could have been in several parts and obviously dead. Um, we would have to wait for that doctor's official confirmation until we could even, you know, until we could even put out a press release saying somebody had died. Um, but meanwhile, you have CNN who's on the scene with their cameras reporting live uh, right there from that spot. So that, that was kind of the that was kind of the the frustration uh, that I felt, and I'm sure a lot of my colleagues felt as, as well. Uh, Staff Sergeant uh, Gooding uh, goes through a transformation. Uh, early on, he is very much affected by the the early deaths that he encounters, has to report on or announce. Later on, he becomes, you know, a little bit more hardened. I imagine that's something that, that most would go through, perhaps even yourself. 
when you were there? Oh, ab- absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that, that uh, Staff Sergeant Chance Gooding Jr. was not based on me, because he certainly, he certainly bears a lot of my, my same traits, at least on the surface. Um, and if you look at the transformation that, that he goes through, like you said, he kind of goes, he kind of arrives in the combat zone kind of wide-eyed and a little bit naive about what's going to happen to him over the next year. Um, and then as, as time goes on, he gets a little more cynical and a little more jaded and, and eventually gets the kind of this hardened guy that, that um, just really can't handle everything that's going on around him. Um, I didn't have a I didn't have a total nervous breakdown, kind of like he does at the end of the book. I, I came out of it fine, but but there are a lot of people that do have a, a really tough time dealing with everything that goes on over there. There are some scenes which are very impactful, uh, in, kind of in the banality uh, with which people deal with the horrors of war. I guess some, in some respects, you'd have to sort of turn some of this off in your head. Uh, there's these these emotionless announcements over the intercom of, of people, uh, soldiers killed in action, and people briefly turn down the NASCAR or the uh, or the video game to listen to that, and then turn it back up again. Yeah, exactly, and and to be honest, that's one of the scenes that's that kind of that kind of uh, kind of sticks close to the truth. Um, like I said, I kept a journal while I was over there. So if you read my if I go back and read my journal, I'm sort of able to see that transformation of of my own self um, and picking up all of these details. Um, so yeah, there's a there are there are just some some really as you said really banal things, but then there's all these ironies of everything that's going on. You've got these regular loudspeaker announcements that sounds like, you know, you know, something you'd hear in Walmart, you know, clean up on aisle four, but it's it's announcing it a, a person's death, a real flesh and blood person's death. And they're just kind of delivering it in these in these bland, monotone, you know, I'm just reporting what's happened kind of tone of voice. So it's it's really tough to, to kind of deal with all that stuff when you're over there. Then how how do you deal with that you're you know in, in some cases you would have you would have known these these people it'd be people in the in the fob would have known people have gone out and, and got killed yeah um it's it's really tough and you know i'm not going to say that doesn't affect people we had um when i was over there um there was a fairly high-ranking officer i think he was a lieutenant colonel who was killed uh one day out there and um i had i didn't know him personally as a friend but i had seen him around the headquarters but um the people i worked with some of my bosses did know him, and they took it pretty hard. And it's it's always really um, hard to to you know to be in that moment when when it's somebody that's really close. I mean, it's one thing to you know to hear a name and you know Private Joe Smith, and you know he you know he uh, you know obviously he's going to matter to somebody, can matter to his parents and his girlfriend and, and the soldiers he works with. But for me, you know, it is just a name. Um, somebody, you know, I, I feel bad that he killed but you don't know him but when it's somebody that that was closer to you or at least especially closer to those that you worked with then it really kind of brings you up short and really gives you pause we're talking with david abrams uh, he uh, spent a 20 some odd year career in the army as a public relations official um and uh, he has written a novel chose uh, that form. We'll ask him following the break why he chose that form uh, to get some of these ideas out there. Um, he based uh, this novel on experiences he had in Iraq. He uh, served a tour in, in Iraq, and uh, the novel is called Fobbit. 
takes us into the chaotic world of Baghdad's forward operating base Triumph. The forward operating base, or FOB, is like the back office of the battlefield. That's where grunts eat and sleep between missions, where a lot of Army employees have what looks suspiciously like an office job. It contains all the comforts of home, but, of course, a mortar might hit you while you're drinking your Frappuccino. Uh, the main character is uh, Staff Sergeant Chance Gooding, who works for the Army Public Affairs Office. And uh, some have compared this to Catch-22, MASH, other uh, satires. We'll ask uh, David Abrams about that as well when we come back. The Provo Canyon Review and Utah Humanities Council are presenting two appearances by David Abrams in Utah on Saturday at 7 p.m. at the Provo City Public Library and on Sunday at 2.30 p.m. at the Salt Lake City Public Library. More with David Abrams following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Green Valley Spa and Resort in St. George, offering a poetry salon the fourth Thursday of every month. Featuring booked poets, singers, and songwriters, details are at greenvalleyspa.com. And by USU Human Resources. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. How do you manage work-life balance? For many of us, life seems to have two speeds, fast and faster. The pressures at work are followed by the needs and demands at home. A recent study found that more than half of American workers felt overwhelmed by their workload at some point. Even so, one-third of those surveyed had no plans to make the vacation days they had available. No matter how energetic you may be, stretching yourself to the limit every day puts your health and happiness at risk. Frequent stress takes a mental and physical toll on your body. If you are often stressed out, you may feel irritated, worried, or depressed, and may have frequent headaches, backaches, or an upset stomach. A wise goal is simply to do what you reasonably can. This will help you strive for a balance between your work and home activities. If you can also manage to take time for yourself every day, you'll be on the road to a greater well-being. This is Dana Barrett for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. David Abrams is my guest. He's a journalist and novelist. He is a retired uh, Army, uh, I think, David Abrams Staff Sergeant. Is that what you retired as? Uh, no, I, I, I retired as a master sergeant. Master sergeant. I was an E-8. I was just one step below sergeant major. Okay. Um, and he was in PR in the Army. His uh, main character is also a, a PR guy, uh, Staff Sergeant Chance Gooding, uh, who is in the forward operating base Triumph in Iraq. This is during the Iraq War. Forward operating base, or FOB, is like the back office of the battlefield. Uh, contains all the comforts of home, including Starbucks and Burger King, writes Abrams. But there's uh, also the unfortunate possibility that a mortar might hit you while you're drinking your Frappuccino. There's a bit of a tension between FOBs, the back office guys, and those who go beyond the concertina wire and to go out and actually do the uh, the fighting. We talked a bit about that. And uh, a bit of guilt among FOBs, that they're they're not the ones out there putting their lives on the line directly kind of mirrors uh, a remove, a distance, a guilt perhaps that we back home feel as well. Uh, David Abrams is coming to Utah. Uh, Presentations uh, sponsored by the Provo Canyon Review and Utah Humanities Council. So two appearances, Sunday, September 28th at 7 p.m. at the Provo City Public Library and Sunday, September 29th at 2.30 p.m. at the uh, Salt Salt Lake City Public Library. David Abrams, uh, even though there's a bit of a distance, a bit of a feeling of guilt, uh, there is the possibility, and I think this did happen, um, that a mortar, you know, could come... Uh, into the FOB, there could be deaths actually right there in the forward operating base. 
That's true. Um, and in fact, it happened uh, several times uh, while I was there. So there was no, there was no real safe place. Um, um, it's kind of a 360-degree battlefield when you're over there. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, I had just arrived in Baghdad, um, and within the week, uh, we did have a mortar that landed um, in the courtyard of our post exchange, which is kind of our little shopping center. It has the, like you said, the, you know, the coffee shop, the Burger King, the Pizza Hut, and little uh, department store there. And it landed and um, uh, killed at least, I think, one person um, and wounded several others. And so that was my introduction uh, to to Iraq. Uh, you know, welcome to Iraq. Uh, you know, you know, it, uh, it's going to rain mortars every day. So you know, that, that was kind of how I, uh, that's, that's how I was introduced to war. Now, when you decided to write about this, you decided on the novel. Why, why novel and not memoir? Well, I made a I made a choice. I made a decision uh, fairly early uh, in the process. Um, and, you know, like I said, I've been keeping a journal, so I had all of this material, and I looked at it, and I said, "Well, you know, I, I could go the route of writing a memoir." Um, and there have been some really good, really good um, memoirs written about the Iraq War. Uh, we've got "The Long Walk" by Brian Kastner, and we've got a we've got a, a memoir called "Kaboom" by um, by a gentleman named Matt Gallagher. Um, we have Dust to Dust by, by Benjamin Bush, and you know all of those all of those tell the story uh, from from you know a true perspective. Um, and I just didn't know if I had anything else to add to what some of those writers said or, or would eventually say. Um, and so I decided to to take the material that I had, some of the material, and of course I added my imagination added a lot more, and then just kind of, you know, turn up the volume, you know, if you've ever seen, um, um, if you've ever seen Spinal Tap, uh, you know, where they turn the volume up to 11, Yes, uh, that's kind of what I did in the novel, I, I took a past 10 and turned it up to 11, and I'm also, uh, I'm also a fan of uh, the great writer Flannery O'Connor, um, and she took a lot of her own life experiences with people that she was, that you know, that she knew down there in, in Georgia, and she transmogrified them into fiction. Um, one, one of her favorite, one of my favorite quotes from her is, to the hard of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. Mm. And so that's kind of what I felt like I needed to do. I needed to shout through a megaphone, and I needed to paint on a billboard in order to get people's attention um, for all the issues uh, that I was talking about on the novel or in the book. What's what 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 are some of the issues you wanted to get out there? What uh, what do we beginning with? What what's your attitude now toward the Iraq War? Um, I I think that you know I, I've had people ask me this a lot uh, at various readings, um, and I I do try to stay um, politically uh, neutral, walking that tightrope, and I think it's. I think it's all that, that background of, of being in that mindset for 20 years that you don't really have an opinion to express. Um, but I, I think overall, um, I'm kind of of two minds. I think that it was, it was good, of course, that we got a really bad person out of power. You know, Saddam Hussein, um, removing him was a good thing. But, it's a, but the problem was we left a really large vacuum of, of leadership and power in that country when we did that. Um, one of the first mistakes that we as the nation and our allies did was um, we completely disbanded the Iraq army. Um, so there was no real military force there. Um, and then we realized, oh, well, we're going to have to 
have to build it back up. And that's what we, we as the United States spent a lot of time doing while we were over there was training was training people and sort of retraining people on the ways of, of combat. Um, so that was one of our mistakes, I think, that we left this huge power, um, and, you know, political and military vacuum um, when we when we went over there. And we spent the rest of the time that we were over there, almost 10 years, um, trying to play clean up and catch up. And I don't know if we succeeded everywhere. I think we did a lot of good things over there, but you have to ask yourself, you know, what was the cost? At what cost did all of those changes come? Because now if you read, you open the paper, and, you know, we're out of there now, but for the most part, but if you open the paper, you're still seeing some of the same headlines. Um, you know, suicide bomb attack and, you know, dozens wounded and killed. So it's it's kind of disheartening uh, for me to, to open the paper and see those kind of headlines. And uh, beyond those killed, of course, there, there are many, hundreds and thousands of soldiers who uh, come home and have continuing very severe problems. Yeah, yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is something. Well, you know, you're going to have that. I think you're going to have that with any war, really. Um, I mean, you know, from Civil War to World War II, even though we think it's, you know, we look on that as a real patriotic war. There are a lot of people that came back in really bad shape, and, of course, Vietnam and, and all of the conflicts. I think any time you put somebody in such in such physical calamity um it's going to do something to the men it's going to do something to them mentally um and so we just need to we you know we, we need to be aware of that we need to understand that and we need to really empathize with these people who have gone through some things that you know even i as a soldier who was even deployed i you know even i haven't seen the, the worst of 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 war um but a lot of people coming back have I, I found myself in uh, reading through the novel being um, laughing. There, there's some laugh out loud funny parts, and then being uncomfortable. And I, <laughs> yeah, because there there is a dark absurdity to to the horror horrors of war. And you've got some very funny characters here. And then over the next page, you'll have you know some of the horrors of war. You know, it's right right in your face. And I, I guess that's a line that you're probably you were probably trying to to navigate. I, I was, and it, it was actually a difficult line to navigate sometimes. Um, and there were some times, that, or there were some things that I took out because it was just crossing over that line, I thought. Um, but, again, going back to Flannery O'Connor, if you look at her, she she tells some very, uh, she, you know, she's, she's talking about some very deep spiritual matters, but she's making you laugh at the absurdity of it at the same time. And so she kind of walked that, that fine line um, between laughter and, and horror in a way. Um, in some point. So, so again, this is one way of catching people's attention, to make them laugh, mm. um, and at the same time to make them think and, and maybe even grimace. I wonder if you'd read another page and a half for me. Uh, this, is, sure. uh, this is the beginning of Chapter 14. Okay. What, uh, uh, yeah, in, and the, the page is 163, I believe. 163, okay. This is an introduction uh, for our audience to uh, a very interesting character. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of humorous aspects to uh, Captain Abe Shrinkle, and some tragedy there too. There is. We don't want to reveal too much, but uh, he's kind of a central character, um, and um, he he really has a good heart, um, but he doesn't always do the right thing uh, as as things turned out. Um, so, so sure, just, just, just glad to read the first be, part beginning of, of that. And yeah, and then then over stuff. over the next uh, page. Sure. Okay. Shrinkle had earned a reputation around the fob as the care package king. It started with a trickle of boxes from his mother, 
her friends at work and a few of his online friends, those who posted regularly to the American Civil War reenactors group at northvsouth.net. And then Shrinkle had learned that there was a multitude of organizations back in the United States, mothers of deployed soldiers, mothers of dead soldiers, prayer circles at churches, Girl Scout troops, Harley-Davidson Vietnam vet clubs, the Vermont Republican Purple Ladies, you name it. And they had all made a nonprofit cottage industry of collecting items that would, quote, bring the comfort of home to our men and women who have placed themselves in harm's way, unquote. Most Americans had no concept of what it meant to live in a world of car bombs and mortar threats and severed arms cocked in the grass beside the road. But Abe was certain most of them wanted to know. They wanted to empathize with him and his soldiers, and they felt slack and helpless sitting back there in the land of cheeseburgers and Paris Hilton perfume. They wanted to say or do something, and so... They reached out a hand in the airport, or they mailed a package of chocolate chip cookies to a person they would never meet, and still they knew it wasn't enough, but at least it was something. And so across America, but especially in the central belt of the heartland, men and women, boys and girls, young and old, armed with plastic baggies and black magic markers, formed assembly lines and packed boxes full of donations that had flooded into the collection center. They spent hours upon hours each week carefully nesting baked goods and toiletries into boxes bound for soldiers they didn't know from Adam or Eve. Uh, they, they went about and pulled the names off of websites that they built, which allowed soldiers to sign up to be on the receiving end. It gave these mothers and fathers, these teachers and students, these pastors and their flocks, hot butterflies of happiness inside their chests. And though they didn't truly understand what was going on over in Iraq and really had no idea what it was like to wear 80 pounds of body armor in the 120-degree heat, it helped salve their collective guilt over the way America had treated the boys returning from Vietnam. Along with the yellow ribbon stickers on the backs of their cars, it was a way for them to show the rest of the world, Democrats especially, that they really knew how to support the troops. It was incredible how the screech of pulling tape across the flaps of just one box could bring spiritual harmony to a person, make her feel like she was doing something that mattered. And of course, you're you're dialing this up a bit, but there, there's oh, some there's course. some you know, <laughs> uh, but there's some truth to that. There's there's some assuaging of guilt, right? As we as we send packages off. A little bit, sure. And, but again, it's something that somebody can do. It's something tangible. Um, and um, I have to confess, I was I was sort of the care package king myself when I was over in Iraq, and uh, um, I was on the receiving end. I was uh, on the receiving end of America's generosity, and I never once um, was ungrateful for that. Um, um, you know, I, I just. You know, there's really no way of knowing how good it makes a person feel to to get a package in the mail. Um, And it it always made me feel really good. So thank you, America, for for sending sending, uh, the chocolate chip cookies and the Carmex and the baby wipes and all of that. We really appreciate it. What's the best thing to send? Oh, what's the best thing to send? Well, actually, I would recommend that people go online. Uh, there are, like I said in the book, there are certain uh, groups, uh, online groups, um, and soldiers um, and military members uh, will send in uh, wish lists. Um, so you want to you want to be able to target specifically because I'll be honest, um, we we have enough baby wipes, and we have <laughs> enough Carmex, and, and all of those uh, all of those uh, standard things over there. Um, so you want to really 
be able to specifically target uh, what the soldiers need. But if you go online, I'm sure you can find those resources. And the, those are much appreciated, you're saying? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. You have a you have a path. You have you know it's kind of a running thing about baby wipes. Second Lieutenant Pepperhill, uh, this kind of helps him with his homesickness. It does. Uh, he uh, he is uh, he's a very minor. He makes just a tiny cameo, just like one paragraph. But um, he's a character who his wife has just had a baby and he's had to leave for this deployment. And so wiping the baby wipes over his face kind of brings back uh, those memories of his of his little little baby's butt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, those smells. Right. Uh, you, your novel's been compared to Catch Twenty Two. That's that's high praise. Is the, and you, I think I read somewhere that you were actually reading Catch Twenty Two as you were as you were heading into Iraq. I was, I was. And let me also say that that uh, that's a really high bar to set uh, for being compared to Catch Twenty Two. And uh, um, I think I've said elsewhere that I'm I'm really not worthy to touch the hem of Joseph Heller's garment. Uh, he's he's just great. And, He's genius of what he does in that book, but but it's true. Um, uh, it, it had always been on kind of my literary bucket list of, of a book to read uh, all of my life. I'd heard about it, and I'd never read it. And um, so the time came when I got orders uh, to report uh, to, to Operation Iraqi Freedom to go over to Iraq, and I said to myself, well, you know, this is, this is actually the best time to read this book. I can't think of any other time that you would want to read Catch-22 other than heading into combat. And, and so that's what I did. Um, I, uh, I started reading it on the very day that I, I stepped onto the plane, which would take me over eventually uh, to Baghdad. So I think it kind of helped put me in the right, in the right mindset as well uh, for my tour of duty. <laughs> I suppose some of these absurdities and, and some of this horror, uh, you really only can process that through, through laughter. Yeah, you, yeah, really. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. Um, you're you're either going to laugh or you're going to cry, mm-hmm. and it's probably better to laugh. We were talking with David Abrams. Uh, he uh, served uh, 20 years or so in the Army, including a tour of duty in Iraq. He kept a journal there in Iraq, and based on his experiences, he's written a novel. It's called Fobbit. It takes us into the chaotic world of Baghdad's forward operating base, Triumph. The forward operating base, or FOB, is like the back office of a battlefield. And there are the fobbits who stay behind, the uh, what you might call the uh, door kickers, uh, who, who go out beyond the concertina wire, uh, and uh, sort of uh, perceptions of each other, and uh, sort of illustrates uh, perceptions that we have and the uh, feelings we have about ourselves with regard to the soldiers that we send out to war. Very interesting, uh, funny, darkly comic novel, uh, Fobbit, and uh, David Abrams will be in Utah for two appearances uh, presented by Provo Canyon Review and Utah Humanities Council. So on Saturday at 7 p.m., he'll be at the Provo City Public Library, and on Sunday at 2.30 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library. We'll talk about perception of heroism and uh, something in the novel called The Moneymakers, Gold for PR guys, and uh, talk about some of the issues there when we come back following break. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming to Utah, and you're invited to his free presentation, Living a Long Sweet Life, at the Logan Regional Hospital on Thursday, October 17th. The presentation includes lunch, but space is limited, so register now at upr.org. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Logan and Moab. You can find out more about those at upr.org. Zorba Pastor's visit to Logan is sponsored by Intermountain Logan Regional Hospital. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Junction City Roller Dolls train wrecks. Skating this Saturday, September 28th, against the Cheyenne Capitals. Bouts begin at 6 p.m. at the Golden Spike Event Center Exhibit Hall in Ogden. Information at JunctionCityRollerDolls.com. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with David Abrams. He served in the Army for some 20 years, and he did uh, serve a tour uh, in Iraq. Uh, he was in the FOB, the forward operating base, like the back office of the battlefield. And uh, many of those uh, types of people are portrayed in his novel, Fobbit. Uh, and he's coming to Utah. A couple of appearances sponsored by the uh, Provo Canyon Review and Utah Humanities Council. Uh, he'll be at the Provo City Public Library on Saturday at 7 p.m. and on Sunday at 2.30 p.m. at the Salt Lake City Public Library. A lot of what goes on in the FOB says Abrams doesn't exactly fit the image of war that Army and the government feed us. Male and female soldiers are trying to find an empty porta potty with which to get acquainted. Grunts are playing Xbox and watching NASCAR between missions. Most of the senior staff are more concerned about getting to the chow hall in time for a Friday night all-you-can-eat seafood special, rather than worrying about little things like military strategy. David Abrams, you're you're you know you're turning this up to eleven, as you said, a reference <laughs> to the the great movie Spinal Tap. Uh, but some of these things, I'm sure, go on in, in the FOB. Oh, sure, to a degree. Uh, I don't know how many people are having sex in porta potties these days. Um, and I didn't witness it firsthand, nor did I participate, of course. I just wanted to get that out there in public. But, um, sure, um, I, you know, there, there are a lot of these, uh, you know, kind of the banalities and, of life and everyday things that, that go on over there. Um, you know, there's a lot more to war than, than just pulling a trigger. You write uh, in the novel. There's there's scenes where um, the the soldiers go out on missions. Uh, they might come back to uh, to the base with with some blood on their uniform. Sit down at the cafeteria, and so you have the fobbits who haven't gone out, the soldiers who have, and I I'm not sure what you know you, you don't talk to each other. You you do, but kind of ignore the elephant in the room. What uh, what what goes on there? Um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of ignoring the elephant in the room. Um, for me, I think it was just kind of a, just, just to give you an example, um, like I said, I never, I only went outside the wire once, and that was for a strictly PR dog and pony show, as we call it. Um, then I came right back. Uh, I was gone for like eight hours. But later in my tour of duty when I was over there, so after all of this time of sitting in front of a computer screen in the air conditioning, you know, not facing all of this kind of reality, you know, of war. Um, uh, I, w I went over to the uh, I went over to the medical clinic one day, and I was just getting a routine prescription. And while I was there, um, all of a sudden the doors burst open, and two guys come in, um, you know, kind of kind of supporting another guy limping between them. And um, I looked down, and his his left foot was just covered in blood. Um, you know, he had a foot; it wasn't blown off or anything, but but I think he had been shot. Uh, in the foot, in the ankle, or in the heel, or something, and they just kind of rushed in, and of course, all the doctors and nurses uh, rushed over to help them. And I just kind of stood there, just kind of slack jawed, like, "Wow, this is the first time that that I've seen blood, you know, um, like like this." Um, and so it really brought home uh, the reality of war uh, to me. 
And of course, I didn't, you know, I didn't talk about it. I didn't know these people. I went, took my prescription and left the clinic, but it really stayed with me. You take at least one of your characters. We talked about him, uh, Captain Abe Shrinkle. He's, I, I, I take it he's mostly a fobbit, but he, he does have at least, you know, one intense experience outside the forward operating base. You know, we don't want to give too much away, but uh, I guess, you know, it just illustrates that it's, it's two different worlds. Oh, yeah. And I think um, I think Captain Abe Trinkle is one of those reluctant fobbits, um, you know, that we were talking about earlier. Um, he does something which basically gets him assigned uh, to kind of a kind of a, you know a, a duty there back at the back at the forward operating base where he has to stay there. He's got a he's got a full towel. He's got to take care of the of the uh, of the gym of the exercise center. Um, so he's there, but he doesn't he doesn't want to be there folding towels. He wants to be out. He wants to be out on the streets uh, with with his men. Um, but he's been kind of stripped of that responsibility by that point in the book. Um, so yeah, he's he's got that he's got that duality of of, um, of wanting to be out in war, but yet being back um, in more of a support role. And I should add really fast that you know, uh, fathers are important. I you know the you know basically the war would not uh, be able to run as smoothly and as efficiently as it does without people who are so-called fathers, all of the support people. People, you know, may, you know, uh, who are repairing your computers and and you know, writing your paychecks and things like that. So, fathers are important. Uh, Sergeant Gooding is, I believe, at, at least one point in the book, he's he's halfway through his tour, and he's and he, you know, you got got the clock. And I imagine everybody who's out on the tour, whether they're fathers or out on the line, you, you are counting down your 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 days. Um, and and the, he might be extended by another sixty days. That kind of took me back to Catch Twenty Two. But it, but it is something you're you're very aware of. You're you're in a very intense situation. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of people had had, had these had these uh, screensavers on their computers, um, which were kind of like the countdown clocks. You know, it's kind of like when you're when you're in a job, you know, for 19 years, and you're looking at your 20th year, you're going to retire, and you have like a retirement clock. It's sort of a deployment clock that counts down the remainder of your days there. Tell me what a moneymaker is. It's referred to in the book. Oh, a moneymaker. Um, I don't know if that's a term that I really came up with or if it was one that's in use in the military, but it's basically somebody who, who goes out and does a really heroic deed, and then he comes back, and uh, we in the public affairs really want to highlight his, you know, his or her um, experiences. Um, and we want to get them on all of the morning you know, news shows like Good Morning America and The Today Show and, and Fox and Friends and all of those, all of those good shows. So, so we really want to highlight his, his experiences out there. And, um, and he's, going to bring, he's going to bring good press and kind of a good feeling about what America is doing over there um, in, in, the, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. So he's kind of our moneymaker, um, as we call him. So for PR guys, you know, you were for 20 years, uh, you're, you're, um, you're doing a sincere thing. You're getting out a positive spin on what you believe the Army is doing, a positive thing. This, I'm sure some people view it, though, if you get a moneymaker so-called out there, it's sort of put up a hero. That's good for recruiting, and a, and a kid in Iowa somewhere, you know, sees that, and it gets into a situation that maybe he just doesn't understand, and, it, you know, w- wished maybe afterwards he wasn't in. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, like in the book, um, there's a there. I think there is a character who's kind of a 
he's kind of placed in this heroic situation and all of a sudden all his attention is showered on him and he's getting all these media bookings and he's kind of like, well, I'm not really sure um, this is really what I want. Um, I can also refer you to another uh, great book, um, which you've probably read. It's called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain. Um, and and, and a, a lot of that book is, is really based around um, that kind of idea of, of these returning heroes and all of the hoopla that we give them. And, you know, they're, they're, real, they're really just soldiers who really want to get back to the, to the war zone. Mm. The uh, 2000s death, that, this was a big thing, and you, you write about this. Uh, of course, this would be big for a, for a PR guy because the media is going to be interested in a kind of an even number like that, which sort of it goes back to that idea. It's, this is sort of a banal number, sort of um, putting antiseptic on a, on, a, on a horrible thing, 2,000 deaths. Exactly, and, and that's actually something that did happen, excuse me, while I was over there. Um, we did approach the 2,000th death, and as I try to make clear in the book, you know, you've got the 1,999th death. Is that any less important than the 2,000th death or the 2,001 death? Um, so, but, but, yet, but yet the media wants to latch on to that, quote-unquote, milestone. Um, it's an historic milestone. Um, and I can understand, coming from the media's perspective, um, that that's, you know, they want to focus on, on something that's, that's a nice, even round number um, that people can grasp and put their, put their arms around. But, but yet, um, you know, the, you know the, the, the person who is number 2,000 is no less important than the person and all the people that came before or after them. Oh, we just have about a minute left. You have an interesting perspective on the media. You're, as a PR guy, you're, you're getting information in the media, you're trying to spin. How do you think the media has done with covering these wars? I think the media has done as good a job as they can um, within within the limitations. Um, I know that sometimes they get stymied by the by the military, um, but I think that um, I think they've done a pretty a fairly balanced job, um, and I have to I have to tip my hat to them. By the way, just parenthetically, as we end, uh, love the acronyms. Any bureaucracy is going to have acronyms. The the army is very prone to them. I think you've made up some in in your novel to to comic effect. Uh, yeah, um, especially uh, the term smog, which is yes. secure, mili- uh, secure, secure Military Operations Grid, I think it stands for. Um, and um, that's just kind of the overall computer uh, software that they use. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to have a kind of a double meaning uh, with that acronym. But, yeah, it was fun. It was fun yeah. to, to play around with the language. Yeah, I guess. I guess. And, and a career Army guy, you get used to the acronyms. Um, David Abrams has been our guest. His uh, new novel, Fobbit is based on his experiences serving in Iraq, the diary he kept there. Uh, it's about the forward operating base, the uh, sort of the back office of the battlefield. Uh, and uh, David Abrams will be uh, doing two appearances in Utah, uh, sponsored by Provo Canyon Review and Utah Humanities Council. They are Saturday, 7 p.m., Provo City Public Library, and Sunday, 2.30 p.m., Salt Lake City Public Library. David Abrams, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tom. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. And for producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. And uh, thanks for joining me today. Join us tomorrow for Amy Larkin. We'll talk about the business case, the economics of a green economy. That's tomorrow. Thanks for joining me today. Commentator Thad Box. Good intentions in solving one problem often harms the whole system. This summer, Logan's trees were covered in honeydew. Cars and sidewalks were sticky. It seemed every tree in town was holding an aphid convention. 
experts tried to explain the event. Most people didn't care what caused it. They just wanted to kill the little boogers, get rid of them, get on with it. Chemical companies make systemic pesticides that are put in the soil, picked up by plants, and moves in the sap. Aphids puncture a leaf, fill their bellies, and die. Aphid problem solved. It's easy and one treatment lasts all summer. Trouble is, it kills the good guys and screws up the system. Over 40 years ago, one of my mentors, Clarence Cottom, said the fire ant control program was like scalping to cure dandruff. Then a best-selling book, Silent Spring, by his protege, Rachel Carson, brought the pesticide debate into most homes. But how soon we forget. 30 Minutes on Google will uncover hundreds of articles about effects of systemic pesticides. Articles show that some, properly used, lead to increased grain production. Others document adverse effects on the biological system. Pesticide mortality of honeybees is well known. Populations and number of species of all pollinators are decreasing worldwide. If pollinators decrease, our food supply is in danger. Well-meaning, smart people trying to solve a specific problem often damage the whole system. For instance, people go to emergency rooms to have an infection treated with antibiotics. The antibiotics attack the organism and cure the infection. But they also kill flora and fauna in the digestive system and affect other microorganisms in and on the body. We have learned through experience that it is the whole system that supports us. People in charge of preventing infection, controlling pests, and waste disposal continue to concentrate on getting rid of the things that harm us. Antibiotics, pesticide, and treatment plants are parts of major industries with advertising campaigns, lobbyists, and salespeople pushing their technology or the system. If we go for a quick fix and ignore scientific evidence about the health of the system, our figurative scalp will dry hanging in the wind. This is Thad Box. Thank you for listening to Access Utah, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan. It's 10 o'clock.